team. And so we're going to dismiss children for Children's Church. And you can follow Pastor Neil and Caitlin Johnson and Rosie out the north door here, ages 4 through 1st grade, for Children's Church. Oh, that's okay. Go get them, Oliver. (laughs) Give me the stink eye. Well, if you look around, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, at least on our wall here. There's no uh, snow on the, on the ground, but I'm okay with that. I don't know about you, but uh, I can wait till Christmas Day for that. Uh, even my own body is cooperating. If you notice, my nose is a little bit red. I feel like Rudolph. Uh, and so a cold, as, as I've been buffeting my nose, uh, blowing my nose for the last 24 hours. So as I greet you afterward, it'll be with the right elbow of fellowship today. So... And it has nothing to do with not uh, wanting to shake your hand. So I want to play a little game with you. Uh, this is called Find Pastor Nathan. This is my ninth grade confirmation class in 1980 at the First Covenant Church in Oakland, California. Nineteen of us, we went through a class every day, every Wednesday afternoon before youth group with the senior pastor, John Nothelfer, there in the middle. That's not me. Um, and John would, basically, it was, a, it was a, a doctrinal class to teach us about the basics of the faith. And at the end of that time, each of us would present a paper on, on one topic, and we'd make an affirmation of our faith. And, uh, and then we had an opportunity later on that summer to be, to be baptized. So, hey, I want to take that next step in following Jesus. And so, uh, if you haven't found me by now, that's me right there, standing next to John, not because I was such a godly kid, but because my height was closer to his. So, um, but the question I ask is, where are they now? Nineteen of us in that class, going through the tenets of the faith, all in the same youth group, many of us going to the same school. Where are they now? Are they following Jesus today? And I kind of kept track of, of, of my classmates all through college, and some of them I still have contact with today. In fact, the, the person that sent that to me is my friend Steve Laux, who was to my left in that picture. I said, hey, Steve, uh, can you find that picture and send it to me? And he's following Christ as a, as a church leader uh, back at that home church still. But some of them... They might be living very successful lives as far as the world is concerned. But they're not following Jesus. Why not? We were all part of the same strong youth group. And I mean, it was a really strong youth group. Great ministry. Most of us had parents that were believers, followers of Christ. They had that desire for us. Most of us had the same opportunities. Some of us are following Christ and some or not? My question is, why not? Two things. Two things. Number one, while their parents may be believers, God has no grandchildren. And their parents cannot live that faith out for them. It has to be their decision to follow Christ. That's kind of one of the reasons why we practice believer's baptism here. 
is because, look, this is your choice to follow Jesus and declare your allegiance to Him, not your parents. But number two, the Christian race is a marathon, not a sprint. And along the way, you're going to hit some obstacles. You're going to hit some resistance. You're going to go through some hardship. For some of us, that may throw us off the trail of discouragement, disillusionment, and cause us to stop following. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's to those who persevere. So how do we do that? And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to bring today as we're in Philippians chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open them up there. But it addresses the need as you go through life to have the right Christ-knowing mindset. To practice an active faith that is well-grounded in God and His Word. To understand that life pursuing something else besides Jesus ends up being vain and destructive. And that ultimately, that God has a glorious future for us. And these words come from a pastor who loves his congregation deeply and wants the best for them. And these words come from a Lord who loves us deeply. And wants the best for us. So as we dig into God's Word, know that that is the heart that is being proclaimed to you today. So let me pray, and then we'll dig in to what God has for us. So Lord Jesus, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for how You worked in Your servant, the Apostle Paul. How You called this man who was once Your enemy to be Your greatest representative. And it is Your love letter to us. So again, I ask, as I do every week, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. And Lord, change us. Don't let us walk out of here the same. Be glorified in your people. And let your word have its impact today on our hearts. To change, to repent, to rejoice, to respond to you. It's in your name I pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen. So here we're going to pick it up at verse 15 in chapter 3. Where the Apostle Paul starts out with these words. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear. Now the word there that in the Greek that we translate as mature is the same root word that Jesus used when he was on the cross and he said, it is finished. It is complete. So there is an end. An end you were trying to live toward. Those who are mature. Those who are being completed. Okay? And we need to have... Um, we need to make knowing Christ our mindset. We need to make knowing Christ our mindset. Because these words follow after what Paul had said in verses 8 through 14. 
that he considered everything rubbish that he had gained in his life as loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And that to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, that is by following the law, but that which was found by faith in Christ, in God, by what he has done, and to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, to be like him in his death, and somehow attain to the resurrection. Paul says, I want to know him by every means possible. He says, I've not yet attained it, but this is the goal that I press on toward. So, as we read these words, it sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Sounds very high-minded, very lofty. But we go, okay, what does that mean? For me in my everyday walk with Christ. And again, he says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things. And part of us are going, <laughs> that sounds great. I'm not sure what you're talking about, Paul. I'm not sure what that means for me. And my, we might even be thinking he's a bit of a masochist. That he's looking for trials. He's looking for some sort of death wish as a martyr even. And then he goes on to say, if any of you on some point think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So maybe something is not quite clear. And maybe that's your faith journey at this point in life. You see, when we first come to Christ, we're excited. We're excited about Him coming into our lives. We're excited about making the good news known to people around us. And we're excited about serving Him, making that known. And look, that is a great, that's a great desire. That's a great thing. But perhaps there's more to it. Yes, he wants us to follow him. He wants us to serve him. He wants us to obey him. But he wants us to know him in every aspect of life. In his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, his death, again in his resurrection. What does that mean for us? That means in our health challenges, or someone's got cancer in your family. Your challenge is at work. Or your boss is saying, do this. And you know that it's in contrast with God's word. The heartache of a broken relationship or a broken marriage. Children who are in rebellion. The challenge of aging parents who are experiencing dementia and barely recognize you or who they are. Maybe just the disappointments of life. It's not working out like I planned. The loss of a loved one. In all these things, we can wonder, where's God? Has He abandoned me? Even worse, does He even exist? But Paul says, no, I want to know Christ. In His death in the fellowship of his sufferings, in his resurrection. And to let all these hardships even cause me to know him. Jesus, what do you want to teach me about yourself in the midst of this trial? In the midst of this hardship? It's not something we look forward to, 
but it is a place where we actually get to know Him better, especially in the fellowships of His sufferings. And where we discover, as the Apostle Paul did, that His grace is sufficient for us. It makes us dependent upon Him. We don't always like that. It's a place where He wants to meet us. Maybe you've heard of C.H. Spurgeon, a great preacher in the, at the end of uh, the 19th and into the 20th century. They call him the, pre, the prince of preachers. He's got a lot of his stuff is out there, and people read his stuff all the time. He put out a thing called the Treasury of David. But C.H. Spurgeon, if you know about his life, went through all sorts of trouble with depression, bouts with his health. There were seasons where he had to step out of the pulpit just to recover, to come back. And in his life, this is... Actually, Neil Johnson pointed this quote out to me this last week, but I thought it was just so apropos. C.H. Spurgeon said this, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of of ages. A maturity mindset of knowing Him. That's my end. I want to know Him. Everything that comes my way, I want to know Him. And the result ultimately will be eternal. And you know what else this, this mindset does? It protects us from a false gospel. It protects us from a gospel that says, if you are His, if you, you know, are really a Christian, then when you become a Christian, your life is going to be totally blessed with prosperity. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That is not a biblical picture. But it's out there, folks. It's out there. And it, it's a place for, where people get abused. Well, if you, know, if you really believed you had more faith, then you wouldn't be going through this. That's a horrible lie. And number two, it keeps us from disillusionment. It keeps us from saying, oh, God didn't show up in my life. Well, He's showing up just in a way we don't expect Him to. What is Christ revealing to me and what I'm going through? What I'm going through. You see, the Christian race is a marathon, not a sprint. Number two. Number two. Maintain a grounded and active life of faith. Pick it up at verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. The Apostle Paul was the original pastor, the OP, if you will, for the Philippians. He came in and preached the gospel to them. He came in and revealed what God was giving them in this new covenant. And he taught them what it was to live the Christian life. Not only that, he taught them, he modeled it. He was an example. And he says, I want you to imitate that. So when he left, and he gave them that model... When others came alongside, yeah, it's good that you know Jesus, but if you really want to be acceptable to God, you need to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament law. He's going, eh. No. That's not the model 
that our pastor gave us. Jesus is our righteousness, not the law. And when they were being persuaded by others in their community, hey, you know, there's a festival to the emperor. I know you're a follower of Jesus, and you can worship Jesus. You know, there's a lot of plurality in the Roman Empire. But just come and worship the emperor. Everyone will be happy. Don't make waves. Eh, Can't do that. Our pastor told us that God's word says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other idols. I can't do that. That was the pattern that the Apostle Paul set for the Philippians. How about us here at Berean? We believe that God's word is the final authority for life, faith, and doctrine. Our very name, Berean, comes out of that. It comes out of that. Acts 17.11 The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with eagerness. The Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel. And they looked in the Word to see that these things are so. That's who we are. I'm oftentimes kind of entertained by a visitor sometimes and says, man, you preach right out of the Bible. And I say, I'm not clever enough to do anything else. Yeah, we do. Because I don't have anything else to say other than what God's Word says. We talk about pursuing God, preparing people, and proclaiming Christ. All those things are rooted in God's Word. Pursuing God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with everything you got. That's what God has told us. That's the greatest commandment Jesus told us. Number two, we're about preparing people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 talks about church leaders and pastors preparing or equipping God's people for works of service in order to build up the body. See, there's not a special class of ministers in the kingdom of God. We're all ministers. I might be in charge of helping equip you, but you're supposed to serve as well. That's what a minister does. So we're preparing people. That's what, that's what Pastor Neil is trying to do with the missions trips he's doing. He's saying, this is an opportunity to prepare the next generation to serve Christ and to proclaim Christ. To proclaim Him. That is to make disciples of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as He told us to at the end of Matthew. But, here's the thing. How can people believe in somebody they've never heard of? And how can they hear about it unless somebody tells them? Folks, our world may not want to hear it. But they need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about who He is, what He has done, how He's changed our lives. I'm I'm excited to hear about the testimonies that the women's ministry will have in the next few weeks. And I'll tell you what, Christmas actually might be a great time to talk to people about that. It's not about Black Friday. It's not about the relatives coming over for the big feast. It's really about what God has done in sending His Son 
He didn't leave us alone. Be praying for that opportunity to share with somebody. We want, but all these things come out of the Scriptures. It is a grounded faith. It is also an active faith. It's not just intellectual assent. It has to be lived out. And the, the Greek talks about walking this out, to be lived out. And again, in imitation of Paul, imitation of our leaders who imitate Christ. So I hope that we as pastors and, and elders are having a life that's worth imitating as we follow Christ. But there's also a sense of imitating one another. You know, Hebrews talks about spurring one another on to love and good deeds. It's not just talk. I think that's one of the most beautiful things that happened on October 10th, is that we got to see each other serving Christ. And because of that, it's encouraged. As was said a few sermons ago, I would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. When I see someone living for Jesus, that encourages me. That spurs me on in my faith. Parents, what kind of example are we setting as we follow Christ? Are we letting our kids in on the faith decisions that we're making? I will tell you, I don't know that I've been a perfect parent. Far from it. But one of the things I try and do with my girls is to tell them about the faith decisions that we have made. That it's real. It's not, just, it's not just a code of ethics that I live by. It is living and walking with the living God. It's an act of faith, grounded in the truth of God's Word. The Christian race is a marathon, not a sprint. The next thing the Apostle Paul does to his beloved Philippians is gives them a warning. To mind the destructive nature of what I call false glory. Verse 18. For I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You see, Pastor Paul, who's been around the block a few times, is pointing out a cautionary tale of those who said that they were living for Christ, but have stopped doing so. They're no longer following Jesus. And Paul calls them enemies of the cross. Why? Because they're anti-Jesus? I doubt it. I doubt it. I think more so is because they don't want to experience the cross of Christ. They don't want to suffer for His name. They don't want to deny their own flesh. And in truth, they're more enamored and interested in the earth, this earthly kingdom than His own. Enemies of the cross because they're committing spiritual infidelity. This heart is put out by Jesus' own earthly brother, the Apostle James, when he says this, James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell within us? It is the idolatry of loving the blessings more than the blesser. And looking to those things for life rather than the God who gives life. There are a few aspects. The first is one of being given over to sensual appetites. Verse 19, their God is their stomach. Now I don't think Paul's necessarily saying they need to go to Weight Watchers. But I think he's talking about sensual desires. Food could be part of it. Wine, drugs, partying, sex. But immediate gratification for your senses, your appetites. The poster child for this is Isaac's first son, Esau. Esau. Who had the birthright of the first child. But when he came home a little bit hungry, and his brother Jacob was making some bean stew, he says, give me some of that. I'm going to die. <laughs> and Jacob, a little wily, Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Tell you what, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you some of this lentil stew if you'll sell me your birthright. That's crazy. That is crazy. I don't care how good that food is. Sell your birthright to inherit the blessing and all the inheritance from dad? And he says, what good will my birthright do me if I die? And he wasn't going to die, folks. He wasn't going to starve. He was just hungry. And he had no control of his appetites. And so he sold his birthright. And the commentary of this in, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, don't be sexually immoral like Esau. It was not, Esau wasn't technically sexually immoral. But he was given, so given over to his, his, his appetites, he couldn't resist selling his birthright. And the, and the scripture, the commentary says, and he despised his birthright. That's a great question for all of us. Are we giving ourselves over to our sensual appetites and despising our birthright as children of the king of kings? So it's a life given over sensual appetites. Number two, it is a life of unbridled rebellion. And their glory is in their shame. I think this was true then, but I think it's even true now. We celebrate kind of a, a rebellion. A life of being edgy. A life where it says, no one can tell me what to do. And we see it in our celebrities. I mean, I don't know if you, about you, but sometimes I just go on MSN and I, I look about, you know, this, this story about this celebrity who's on the red carpet and look at her daring, plunging neckline. Or, you know, this dress that's revealing more than they should. And, and we celebrate that. I'm going, really? That's something to be celebrated, imitated? We celebrate 
immodesty, sexual exploits. So we celebrate that we got away with it. There's no sense of shame. It's all for living for the here and now and saying, look at me. Look at what I got. And they don't realize that they're going to have to account before God for that. But they don't think they're going to be held accountable because they have a worldview that's earthbound. Their mind is set on earthly things. They're not able to see beyond this world, this life. If not, it's of no value. But here's the problem with this worldview. It's what it says at the beginning of verse 19. Their destiny, or literally their end, is destruction. Their end is destruction. Putting all their eggs into this life, ignoring what God has done in Christ, and they will have a very rude awakening when this life is done. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. You and I have an appointment before our Heavenly Father with what we did with this life. And Jesus, our Lord, says, What will it profit a man or woman if they gain the whole world, yet lose their very soul? This is a cautionary tale. Not to live for this earth, because it's heading toward destruction. It feels good. Immediate gratification feels good, but it won't last. And the Apostle John said in his first letter, He said, do not love the world or anything of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Just to give us a little perspective, I don't know of any of you who are out yesterday looking for deals on Black Friday, And that's great. I'm all for saving money. But i got bad news for you. It's not going to last. Whatever you bought probably will end up in a landfill somewhere in a few hundred years or earlier. Your money, your house, your possessions, they won't last. Any sensual experience or cool thing you experience on this life and this life won't last. Your notoriety, your fame, your reputation, and even your achievements won't last. Any work you do, any resources that you invest will not last. It's all false glory. Unless you have invested it in His kingdom. In following Him. That's the only way it's going to last if you invested it in Jesus and His kingdom. But here's the truth. (laughs) Apart from this world, what He gives us is an even greater inheritance. And so, number four, we need to make our glorious citizenship, our glorious citizenship, our hope. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious 
body. Now, specifically, Paul was you know, referring in contrast to the citizenship that these Philippians had, right? The Philippians knew what it was like to be citizens of a country or a city that they were displaced from. They were literally Roman citizens, but they lived in Macedonia. That's what their earthly citizenship said. But in Christ, their citizenship is not ultimately in Rome. And in Christ, our citizenship is not ultimately in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. It's in heaven. And the Lord is not ultimately Caesar or Joe Biden or any other leader, but the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. With this, we live in this citizenship in the now and not yet. There are some things that are complete. There are some things that are yet to be completed. And here's one of the things that we need to know. His authority, while He is sovereign, has not been fully exercised. Not everything has put themselves under the authority of Jesus as we await His return. And as He awaits men and women to respond to Him as Lord. One of the reasons why Jesus delays is because He needs some more people to come and put their faith in Him. But when He comes, His power and His authority will be on display over all things. Verse 21, Who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control. And I mean everything. Everything, everyone will fall into subjugation to Him. As we saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 10, that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who believe in Him, those who do not believe in Him. Everything will be under His authority. And the choice will be, have you chosen to be under His authority and experience the freedom of it? Or are you going to choose to have to be compulsively under his authority and receive the consequences? He's controlling every aspect. Every aspect. Everything is subjugated to him. And even more so, death and decay. Continue on. We'll transform our lonely bodies so they will be like His glorious body. Thanksgiving evening, I played volleyball with the Kluth family, Brand family and Kluth family up at Schaefer Academy. Here's the thing, folks. 57-year-old Pastor Nathan doesn't move like he used to. Doesn't recover like he used to. I took three Advil before I went, I took three after. I am slowly on the downhill slide. I don't like it. I don't like it. But you know what? That is just the broken citizenship of this earth. But I have a new citizenship in heaven. And Jesus is going to come and make all things new. 
He's going to transform our lowly bodies, our humbled bodies, to be like His. He's going to reverse the curse of the sting of death. And it's guaranteed by His resurrection. And that's great hope to have on really hard days. That's great hope to have on really hard days. I don't know if you were here this summer when John Steer preached about heaven. But man, that was great. He reminded us we have a glorious future. He was excited. I was excited. I hope you're excited about what Christ has for us. And we need not fear death or man. Because the truth is, as Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is reason to rejoice in the Lord. It's the reason why Paul says, it's no trouble for me to write this to you again. And he's going to say it again in this same letter a little bit later in chapter 4. But again, we have a glorious, glorious inheritance. We ought to fix on that, focus on that, rejoice in that. Yes, it's not yet, but it's coming. And that is our blessed hope. That is our blessed hope. The Christian race is a marathon, not a sprint. And the last factor I want to point out to you actually starts in chapter 4, verse 1. But motivating beloved brothers and sisters to stand firm. This is what he says. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Because notice the language of affection he has for them. My dear brothers and sisters, whom I love, I long for you. You're my joy and my crown. Pastor Paul's a very tender heart for these beloved brothers and sisters. He desires the very best for them. And he's laid it out for them. Guys, have that mature mindset of knowing Christ. Be grounded in the pattern I showed you. Make that active. Walk in it. Imitate what you saw in me. I want you to be aware of the foolishness and the destruction of living for this world rather than for Christ and His glory. And I want you to have your hope set on the glorious future that you have in Christ. How He's going to transform us. He's going to bring everything under His authority, including our decaying bodies. What a great hope. Stand firm. I've told you. I've modeled it. Now stand firm. I love you, but I can't live that for you. You have to do it. You have to do it. And brothers and sisters, as I look out of this congregation, I have a heart of affection for you. I love you and I care for you. And I pray that you would take this truth in. To know Jesus. Folks, there's a reason why I keep quoting Psalm 16 too. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. I want you to know that reality. Because 
Life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. I want you to stay rooted and grounded in God's Word and live it out. I want you to have discernment to go, hmm, putting my faith and confidence in this world and what it has to offer, it's, it's a false glory. And have a life that's fearless, founded in Christ, knowing the glorious glorious future you have, the transformation. I love you. I want you to have this. I cannot live this out for you. But I hope to motivate you to do so. That's my heart as your pastor. Again, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. Let's employ these things so that we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, when he comes. Let me pray, and then Bobby, will you and the worship team close us? Lord, we thank you for this good word. And we pray that you will help us keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus. Keep us grounded in the truth of who you are. Keep us living out this life. As you even, Lord Jesus, dwell within us, help us to not depend upon ourselves, but to depend upon the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And Lord, help us to look longingly for the glorious future that you have for us. Not putting our confidence in this world, but in you. So I thank you that you came for us, Lord Jesus, to make us your own, and you're coming for us again to transform us and give us a glorious future. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.